1: Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff and today Leah and I are going to be talking with Ben about mountain bike endurance training. So we've talked about endurance training before, you know, for some of this, this means gearing up for a six or 12 hour race or a multi-day stage race or, you know, for some of us, it's just trying to hang on to the back of the pack for a two hour ride. But for everyone, endurance looks different. But if you have a goal to enter that first race or just want to be able to put more miles in every week, our guest today has some advice for how to make those goals and to be set up for success.
0: Today, Ben Turret joins us. Now, I used to work with Ben years ago. We'd carpool to performance bike in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Now Ben runs a coaching business and a sports therapy practice called the Endurance Collective. He also coaches the Duke University cycling team, as well as a number of mountain bike athletes, including Travis Livermont. Now, I had to look this guy up because I'll be honest, I'm not all on top of the racing. but Travis appears to be crushing it on in the cyclocross world. And with the help of Ben, he's preparing for the 2020 Olympics to compete in cross-country mountain biking. So that's just super impressive to me. I can't even imagine how much training it takes to get ready for the Olympics. So I can't wait to hear what Ben has to say on the topic of endurance training. So without further ado, let's welcome Ben to our show. Hey, Ben, you there?
2: Yeah, I'm here. Good to good to talk to you, Leah.
0: Awesome. Well, this is great. We haven't talked... Much over the years, but like I mentioned before, Ben has been in the cycling industry a while. We used to work at Performance Bike Together. And now to help coach mountain bikers or athletes, surely you're a mountain biker yourself. So tell us a little bit about your mountain biking background, Ben.
2: Oh, man, I've been in mountain biking since the days of skinny little short flat handlebars and rim brakes and narrow tires. I started mountain biking, I think, uh, probably 1993, Was my first mountain bike race. I was 13 years old.
1: Wow. That was before Nika too. Yeah. That's impressive. 13 years old. Yeah. What was the division back then? Oh,
2: it was, it was, uh, some of you may remember Norba, (laughs) you know, Norba Nationals. It was before, uh, it was before mountain bike racing was even really, I guess, technically part of USAC. So yeah, I raced, uh, I raced alone. I actually got into mountain bike racing racing downhill and dual slalom. Wow. Yeah, it was...
0: On those skinny tires. Skinny brain, brain skinny man. tires,
2: and it's when uh, John Tomac was my hero, and downhill on uh, 80 millimeters of travel was a, a, a downhill <laughs> fork. And now my uh, cross-country race bike, I think I have uh, 120 mils of travel on it. So wow. Things have come a long way, but I, I did race all throughout high school and uh, into college. I raced for uh, Jameis Mountain Bikes, raced for a Schwinn development team for a little bit. And after that, I had a coach who told me that if I wanted to get really fast on a mountain bike, I needed to get a road bike. (laughs) And all of a sudden, I found myself racing on road bikes for a decade. And I've recently, in the last five, six years, really come back to mountain biking and gotten into working with some high level athletes and, and racing six hour and 12 hour races myself. And, uh, just starting to get into enduro racing too. Just, just for fun at this point in my life.
0: (laughs) Just for fun. Well, awesome. It sounds like you've had experience with coaches since you were young. So did you have a coach that inspired you or how did you get started coaching yourself?
2: Actually the coach that really inspired me was a guy named Rusty Miller. Rusty was a, a neighbor of mine in Durham, North Carolina, and it was more on the, the road side of things. Rusty I just he, he had a way with athletes and he had a way to really motivate people and he he ultimately convinced me to leave Performance Bicycle and start up my own coaching business and work with the the Duke team. And now Rusty and I both coach at a USA Cycling talent ID camp together. And, uh, he takes a team of guys to Ireland every year. And at the same time, I take a team of, of youngsters to Canada to race, uh, what's called a nation's cup race. And Rusty has been great. I, I really think that he has helped shape my career and, and shape, the type of coach I am.
0: That's really cool that you get to work with the youth and you get to work with somebody that's as passionate about coaching as you. Well, who do you coach other than the team you just mentioned, and, and who could benefit from having a, a cycling coach?
2: Well, so I coach everything from, like you mentioned, Trav. He's he's an elite level CX and, and mountain bike racer. He's also done races like the Tour California, and I. I've coached several other elite level road and mountain bike athletes, and then all the way down to uh, a 14 year old Nika mountain biker who he's just learning how to get good on the trails and enjoying himself. Uh, so I kind of kind of run the ga- gamut between professional athletes and guys just getting into it. Um, you know, and, and it's it's really fun to have both ends of the spectrum. Meet. So I actually, I work with uh, some, some endurance mountain bikers too. I have a couple of guys who do races like the High Cascades 100 and O-RAM and some of those longer mountain bike races. And so the the difference between training for a, a pro-level XCO event and doing something like High Cascades 100 is, is, is pretty different. The effort is, is, they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, you know, one guy needs to put out a... A ton of watts from the start line and carry it through for an hour and a half while the the other side of the gamut the the high cascades endurance rider needs to be able to ride at tempo or endurance pace for too long (laughs) too long for me that's a lot of time in the saddle but you know i can make you do it
1: (laughs) nice well, you said that everyone can benefit from having a coach. What are some of the barriers that you find people have to getting a coach? You know, is it is it just the cost or is it sort of recognizing when you need a coach?
2: Yeah, uh, co- cost is certainly a barrier, you know, and, and what I tell people when we talk about cost is, uh, you know, think about think about playing hockey or getting your violin lessons and stuff. That, that tends to be just as expensive, if not more expensive, than hiring a cycling coach. You know, and, and a lot of people don't know what they're paying for when they get a cycling coach. You know, you look on the Internet and there's all these 16-week, $99 train for your first 100-mile ride plans, um, and those are great, and some people, some people benefit from them. But really what you pay for when you get a coach is – Somebody who is building a relationship and providing uh, an objective point of view for you, they you know I help organize people 's lives so that training fits in um, you know, I work with a a, a top level executive to, who who does these mountain bike races and man he 's flying all over the world <laughs> and trying to figure out how to fit in six seven eight hour rides on a weekend. This is a challenge. And you know, from his point of view, he just wants to be able to come off a plane, put his helmet on, and look at his computer, and say, "Okay, coach has me doing x, y, Z today so cost is a barrier, yes, uh knowing when you need a coach, you reach a certain level of of riding um it, we kind of call it a plateau where You've gotten all you can get out of self motivation and online plans, and and then you need to you need somebody to look at data or or be able to talk to you and tell you, hey, you know, you need to take a rest or you need to be pushing this a little harder. So yeah, there's there's definitely a there's definitely a challenge of figuring out when you do need a coach, and and sometimes it's it's best to to talk to your friends and talk to people who may have had some some coaching. So, or who have worked with a coach before to help motivate you to go out and find somebody?
0: <laughs> do you find that that's a large part of your job like having to motivate people, giving them that pep talk to get out and put the work in
2: <laughs> yeah I'm, i i I could be a cheerleader for sure some sometimes almost too much sometimes I need to uh you know i'm not a I'm not the kind of coach who comes down on my athletes very hard. Um, And sometimes I do have athletes that are say, you know, do say, you know, Ben, could you push on me a little bit harder? Because I I like, you know, ultimately a lot of us are doing this for fun and we're not paying the mortgage with mountain bike racing. Um, So I want to make sure that they are having a a good time. But yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a cheerleader, but I can also be somebody who's, you know, like Leah, you're... You're not riding hard enough right now. You're not going to accomplish your goal if, if you don't put in some more miles or focus more on your training.
0: It's, it's funny that you say that because I, I can kind of relate. Um, I teach like group fitness classes. I teach spin and hit sometimes and it is hard to motivate people, right? Like you have your regulars there that you know, you know, could eke out a few more pushups and, and they're kind of just hanging out. And then there's people that maybe they're, Beginners and they look like they're dying and you, you need to like kind of more gently go over there and tell them like, you know, let's modify the exercises or maybe you should, you know, take a little breather and and things like that.
2: One of the things that is really important for coaches to do, you know, is provide that objective point of view. And a lot of times I'll find that it's, it's not even about riding hard sometimes it's riding less uh, a lot of times i get athletes who have reached a level and they they can't break through this plateau and what they need is somebody to tell them to take time off and that is what takes them to the next level is actually resting and you know the, the mantra of training hard but resting harder is really important, especially as you get into these elite levels of riding. A lot of people just want to ride their bike all the time. And they need a coach to tell them, hey, you know, tomorrow you need to take a day off or you need to do a coffee shop ride that's slower than grandma to really – to flush those legs out. Um, you know, that, is, that is probably my biggest challenge with some of my athletes is getting them to ride slow. Uh, personally, I never, I didn't get real fast until I learned how to ride real slow. Huh. That's really, really important.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. That's what I was going to ask is, do you have a hard time convincing people that they need a rest break? And because I could see a lot of these, these competitive type people just saying, no, no, I need to push, push, push. And I could see them, you know, not agreeing with you and saying, no, coach, like I'm going to, I'm feeling good. I'm going to keep going. But yeah, I could see having to.
2: Absolutely. First thing we do at Duke Cycling is we get all the riders together and we go on a a recovery ride. And we ride down from, we ride this thing called the Tobacco Trail here in Durham, where it's it's just a greenway. And we ride down the Tobacco Trail to a coffee shop and get a cup of coffee. (laughs) And we ride at 10 miles an hour. And there's, you know, guys on rollerblades passing us. And, (laughs) And the instinct is to chase these people down. And I find myself reaching out and grabbing people's jerseys and pulling them back because, hey, we're on a recovery ride. We're not talking about bikes. We're talking Netflix and, and uh, you know, politics and whatever else it is. But, you know, you got to give your, your legs and your mind a rest from cycling so that you want to do it.
0: So active recovery, mm-hmm. would you say that's a little bit, you know, that's kind of as the most energy that you want to be able to put forward? What about just rest, rest, like sleeping and sitting on the couch and <laughs> laying around? Does that, does that count?
2: I think when we were carpooling to work, I was at, you know, kind of in the death throes of my road cycling career. And, uh, one of the things that we always stress was like, if you're, if you're not standing, you should be sitting. And if you're not sitting, you should be laying down, uh, You know, rest is so important, and I I do almost always give every one of my athletes a complete day off once a week. I think it's it's and it it if they're racing, it's usually a Monday. So they come back from a race weekend and they either do active recovery or they just have a complete day off to you know. There's you you have to accomplish other things in your life other than cycling too. It's a good day to you know go to the bank. Get errands done, but also just lay around and watch TV. That's that's important.
0: Watch TV and eat. Eat. How about eating? Eat. Why don't we talk about that a little bit? Because I on my rest days, I like to eat. Let's be honest, we all like to eat. But how does that affect you know my goals as a as an athlete? Should I care what I'm eating on my rest day?
2: Absolutely. Well, you know you should care what you're eating all the time. You know if if you put if you pit, put bad fuel in the tank, you're going to get a bad result. Um, you know, you want to you eat well, eat a well-balanced diet. Make sure that before training rides or races that you do have a, a, a meal. Uh, you know, whenever I, I work with a new cyclist, the first thing we talk about is eating before and after and what to eat before and after and then what to eat during. You know, you have to eat. To fuel your body and we're talking about endurance riding here you need to be eating every 30 45 minutes during an endurance mountain bike race and on your day off it might be a good data to to experiment with new types of sports nutrition because you sure don't want to try that out on day of a race or day of a hard workout you know you upset your stomach with uh, some new blocks or gels or whatever that is um you know, it's it's really important to get your nutrition dialed in before competition or before hard workouts. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, definitely. And there's some nasty tasting gels out there. <laughs> and you know, the stuff tastes so much better, like after or and during the middle of a workout, it tastes great. But like, if you're not quite needing it, and you're Eating the fifth one on your fourth hour in, Oof, they're, yeah, kind of nasty. But
2: I would always recommend one of the things I I like and and I learned riding in Europe was eating real food on the bike is just so much better than eating some of that sports nutrition.
0: So you're just riding around with a baguette sticking out of totally your yeah jersey giant, you know some, some cured
2: meat and mustard that's important
0: I could totally picture that <laughs> <laughs> as long as you get protein too
2: absolutely um i like to make you know endurance mountain bike races i like to eat sandwiches i have little uh, little turkey sandwich kind of thing that i put together and cut it up into cubes and that just works for me you know you have to find things that work for you and i would really encourage all the listeners to experiment with real food on the bike. Yeah. The Feed Zone Cookbook and Feed Zone Portables, I think Alan Lim is the author. But those books you can get on Amazon and they are awesome for making little portable food things to take with you, little rice cakes and stuff that are so much better than trying to cram down some some chewy sugar.
1: Yeah. I have some friends who like to measure long bike rides by the number of sandwiches. So they'll be like, hey, you know, anybody want to go on a two sandwich ride this weekend or three sandwich ride?
2: I like it. I might have to steal that. I like that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad to know that like to train for endurance rides, we don't have to follow some crazy strict diet, you know, whether you're paleo or you're Trying to count those macros and all the stuff that we have to try to figure out. It's, it's good to know that we have the ability to reach for a sandwich. That's good fuel as long as it's real. So we've talked about the rest, the nutrition. Let's get back to the training again. Um, I want to know a little bit more about, you know, what a training plan might actually look like. Say you're taking an average rider like myself, that maybe just goes for a ride a couple of times a week. And I I want to get to that that 100-mile mark, right, where I can accomplish that 100-mile race. Could you walk me kind of through what a training plan for, you know, an average Joe or Jane like myself might look like?
2: Yeah, sure. So the biggest thing I do when I sit down with a new athlete is, you know, first thing is we look at – What's your what's your target? You know, if it's, say, Leah, you want to go out and do a, a six-hour race. That's your target. The next thing I need to know is, can you ride six hours? Have you ever done that? And we need to get you, if you haven't, we need to kind of step you up so that you are able to do six hours before the actual race. So as a coach, you've got kind of two dials to turn And you've got intensity and volume. And so I'm going to gradually turn both of those dials up over time. And what we'll do is, as athlete coach is sit down and kind of look at your life and make this 30,000-foot level plan to step you up gradually to your event and then maybe taper you out two weeks before your event. So we might start out, say you, you've you never ridden six hours before and you've got six hours a week to train because you have a busy life and you've got kids. Well, I'm going to look at maybe dialing up the intensity a little bit more than the volume because you'll get more bang for your buck during the week. And then you might be able to do longer mountain bike rides on the weekends. And we'll we'll look at specific targets along the way to measure how your fitness, you can call them little pop quizzes along the way. And that's a way for me to check in and see, okay, Leah, we're on track here or mm, we need to, we really need to dial things up or maybe we need to dial things back and you need to rest a little bit.
1: I really like that, the pop quizzes, because now it's all starting to make sense to me. It's like school, you know, like your coach gives you the homework and, and you're getting the pop quizzes along the way to see how you're doing. And then, yeah, the final event is your test. And I think that's a model. A lot of people can understand because, you know, we've all been there. We've all been in school and this is, this is school for your body.
2: Absolutely. And, and it goes both ways too. You know, those little pop quizzes are a self-evaluation for me too. You know, I, I'm, I'm a big part of this. I need to make sure that I hold myself accountable and and I'm doing what I need to get you to where you want to be. So as a coach, you know, that that works both ways and and I may be using a technique with you that you don't respond well to and I need to kind of rework how I'm working with certain athletes based on how they respond to training loads and, and techniques and everybody's body is different and adapts differently to training.
0: Now I like the high intensity part, like knowing that I don't have to commit you know, 20 hours of my life every week just to, absolutely you know, be able to accomplish my goal. I think that's a really unique way of trying to get more out of your life. That's what we're always trying to do in everything. We want to be efficient at work. We want to be efficient with exercise and with food and having to know that, you know, things are can accomplish your goals, even with competing priorities in your life, I think.
1: But it hurts more. Yeah, well, that's, it, it, hurts more, it definitely hurts time. more. Um,
2: and I think that's that's a good example you brought up is, you know, efficiency in life. That's why you hire a coach. Really, that's one of the biggest reasons. I, I had an example of a, a pediatric ICU doctor that I worked with who was just, this guy could suffer like nobody's business. And he wanted to race Leadville and he wanted to do it in under 10 hours. and Whoa. So, Whoa,
1: that golden belt buckle, yeah, right? Yeah, he, he wanted that, that belt buckle.
2: You know, <laughs> I, I wanted that belt buckle too. I'm not sure I could sit on a bike that long. but uh, So we had six hours a week to train. And that's, you know, okay, how do I know you can ride 10 hours? Well, it's going to be a challenge. We did a lot of high-intensity workouts to get him dialed in with only six hours a week and and along the way we hit some checkpoints. I think we did Pisgah stage race. We did a couple of other, we did O-Ram, um, just to, just as check-ins to see if he was ready for, for Leadville. And he hit all of his markers along the way on only doing six hours of, of training a week. So that was a unique challenge and he came in under 10 hours.
1: Wow, that's awesome. I love too how you say we, you know, when you're talking about like the races, you know, like that's, I mean, that's what a coach does, right? Like it's a team effort and it's, that's what it's all about. So that's really awesome.
2: I find myself getting just as excited, if not more excited about what an athlete races, you know, than I was when I was racing. I'm nervous when I have an athlete go to the start line and I'm there and I'm jumping up and down when they're in a, in a break or, you know, it's, it's really fun. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been a great transition into retirement from racing. We'll call it.
0: Retirement. Awesome. Giving back. So for the introverts out there though, having to work with a coach might be a little uncomfortable. I got to let you into my life. Yeah. So, you know, how often does that interaction take place on the course of a training plan? Or are there other ways we can communicate, you know, to make it a little less in your face for some of those people out there that might not be as extroverted?
1: A lot of mountain bikers, people. if we're honest. I mean, yeah. we've done, we've done surveys and, you know, I mean, fun- I'm
0: asking for a friend. So.
1: <laughs> but yeah, a lot of people, a lot of mountain bikers tend to ride alone. And yeah, it's, it's definitely a sport that attracts those types of people. So yeah, what have you found with that, Ben?
2: It's, um, you know, it, it's, it's different for everybody. And I would say modern technology has helped with this a little bit. You know, I, I have athletes that just want to email or just want to text message. Uh, one thing I do require as a coach is we need to be on the phone at least once a week because I need to hear your voice. And that's a way that I can kind of sense how you're doing you can tell the way somebody is talking, whether they're, whether they're fried or not. But, um, you know, I have some (laughs) writers that that's it. That, That one phone call is, is all we get. And, and I'm looking at their data otherwise, you know, and that's one of the things that has helped really dial in the coach athlete relationship on one end is, is being able to look at data and, and challenge an athlete and say, Hey, I saw you did your workout today. You kind of missed the intent, I think. Or, man, you nailed it. That was awesome. Maybe we can we can turn up the intensity next week because you crushed this workout. So, you know, on one end, data has really been helpful as a coach. But the downside of that is sometimes people are just paralyzed by data. They they are constantly looking at their computer and they're calling me because, you know, they want to know, hey, I missed this interval by five watts. What do I do? ah, it doesn't matter, make, make, make your own decisions, you know? So, you know, there's, there's, you know, that goes both ways. But, um, for the introverts out there, I need to know how you're doing, but you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be in my living room all the time.
1: Yeah. Do you do video chat at all? Yes. I mean, they say that 80% of communication is nonverbal, right? So,
2: right. Yeah, we definitely, uh, yeah, I, I do use FaceTime with athletes. I've actually used WhatsApp with an athlete who's been abroad,
1: That's good. That's encrypted. So nobody can spy on your conversation.
2: Nobody can spy on my conversation. Um, (laughs) you know, so any, any type of media works for me. Uh, you know, I'm an Apple nerd, but uh, you know, I, I, I come from a generation pre internet or dial up internet. So, you know, I've got some younger kids who are using Snapchat and all this stuff and I don't understand any (laughs) of that.
0: Oh dear. Yeah,
2: I know. Uh, (laughs) so, you know, whatever the athlete Whatever they like, I tend to be fine with, you know, as long as it's convenient, and you know that's one of the things we we do kind of when I do an intake. we sit down and we talk about what are their preferences for communication um and I do lay it on them i need to I need to hear from you once a week
0: that's not too bad, right right introverts? that's that's fair. <laughs> I think that's fair. Well, you touched a little bit on some of the data that you look at. I'm curious to know what exactly it is that you're having measured. What is the data?
1: Yeah. What's sort of the minimum stuff that you need? Is it just heart rate or are there other things as well?
2: Heart rate works. Uh, I honestly don't have a whole lot of heart rate only athletes I have in the past, but right now... Power is, you know, everybody's looking at, at power data. And I think it's it's a it's a great objective measure of a workout. But a lot of times I will tell people to put their Garmin or their Wahoo in their back pocket and just go ride your bike. You know, it's data is great for focus workouts and for being able to hold people accountable for what they're doing. But sometimes people will go down rabbit holes because of data. They get they get so paralyzed by the numbers they forget to have fun. Right. And, you know, I, I come back to that every time. You know, we, we are doing this for fun. And ultimately if you're not having fun and you're so paralyzed by your your numbers, why do it?
1: Yeah. Well, right now, these days, it seems like there are a lot of options for measuring power. Do you have any preference, especially for mountain bikers? I mean, it's kind of limited, yeah. you know, the equipment that's available. Is there anything you prefer, like a pedal-based one? or
2: I like crank, crank-based systems, I find, are, are really good. They, they tend to be not cheap. Um, but I'll, my mountain bike athletes, uh, at this point, mostly have quarks. I still have one on a on a power tap hub, but uh corks cork power meters are good uh stages are okay you know on the road i most everyone I work with has some sort of crank based system you know stages tends to be the cheapest, and see they work just fine you know the the one thing. That I'll tell people, you know, I, I'm 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 system ambivalent. You know, I don't really care what you use as long as you're getting me something. And honestly, I work with this high school kid, and, and I tell him to go hard enough where he can't have a full conversation, but easy enough <laughs> that he can speak in short sentences. You know, okay. so, it's
1: pretty specific.
2: Yeah, perceived effort does still work, but as you start to climb the climb the ladder towards the top power or some sort of of metric becomes important. You know, I would say the challenge with heart rate is that it's it's influenced by many external factors like, you know, fatigue or you know, too much caffeine or some sort of emotional stress. Heart rate does work as a great secondary metric. So if if I see some power numbers that look funky, I might go in and look at heart rate to see what was going on there too, and I can deduce that, oh, you know, we're dealing with some fatigue here, or maybe we're dealing with sickness or whatever it is, and then get on the phone and have a conversation based on what I see.
1: How important is like the actual power number versus the relative? You know, a lot of these solutions that are out there, you know, claim they're within 1% or whatever. But yeah, does that really matter how accurate it is?
2: As, as long as it's relatively accurate and consistent, you know it's for, for for most people out there general accuracy is good um for elite athletes being able to put out numbers that are that are consistent and and are you know they they may be dealing with different power meters every year so i may have a rider that's riding pioneer one year and then they change sponsorships and they're riding <laughs> srm the next year those numbers need to be pretty darn close, but the way you get around that, obviously, you know, you, you do some testing and I like to hide my testing <laughs> in, in the workouts because, you know, you, you, remember testing in school, you got nervous, right? Right. So, um, I might, uh, hide a test in the middle of a workout and not tell the athlete so that <laughs> nice. you know, I can, I can see, you know, the, and, and the smarter athletes will, will know that that's a test. they, they, kind of send a message back and say, ha I knew this was coming or, um, <laughs> but those athletes that, that do get nervous and, and underperform for tests. Um, I need, to, I need to bury those tests within a workout so that I know that they're going to do their best. Um, and that allows me to get some consistency in those power numbers.
1: Yeah, that's clearly really, I mean, your approach is very scientific, which I think a lot of people can appreciate, especially those introverts maybe who are, into math and science and stuff and (laughs) like that yeah totally makes sense
2: if you you can definitely if you're a data nerd and you love numbers um power training with power can be really fun um you know the 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 thing that i'll caution people against is comparing power numbers to other people those numbers are unique to you your your weight is different your ability to do specific efforts is different and you know, that's why things like Strava, oh my gosh, as a coach, they are, you know, Uh-oh. they drive me nuts. First of all, why would you, you know, as a racer, why would you want anyone to know how fit you are?
1: Yes, I've been wondering that. And it's from the beginning and I've been, you know, I follow some athletes and I wonder how many of the rides they're putting on Strava and how many they aren't.
2: And they, you know, it's it's fun sometimes to go someplace new and and knock off some KOMs or look at Strava segments and there there's definitely good aspects to Strava and it's and it it's been helpful for me when I travel to to look up rides but gosh, you know, people comparing themselves to each other is 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 just the bane of our existence. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Kidding. It's totally normal. But but with power, you know, if if you know, if you're looking at your power numbers, Leah, and and trying to compare them to mine, apples to oranges um you know and and not hey (laughs) my
0: oranges are pretty big
2: (laughs) well you know our weights are different our our experience is different and you know i find some people just get really upset or stressed out over well hey coach so and so did this in the race last weekend why you know am i not fit enough because i can't hit that number well no you're 30 pounds lighter than her you know, that's it. So, um, I think people need to, you know, take, take some of that comparison and, and, uh, you know, put it in their back pocket and, you know, and, and just enjoy the ride and, and use Strava as uh, something that's just fun.
1: What about cadence? Does that play into it at all? Absolutely. I feel like, you know, I know, Different people that I ride with, some guys, you know, you'll look over and they're just, they're spinning their legs so fast, you know, and then other, other people like me, I like to, you know, push a pretty stiff gear um, up hills. And I feel like that would affect your power as well, right? So do you, do you measure cadence? Does that matter? Absolutely. I mean, we don't, we don't talk about it much for mountain biking, but it seems like it, it should definitely have an effect.
2: It's, it's actually really important for mountain biking too. Cause if you think about, so, when your optimal cadence, and this is, you know, very general, pedaling cadence is around 90, 90 RPM.
1: Is that for everybody or is that?
2: Well, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of like 120 over 80 for blood pressure. Everybody's unique, but that's kind of the general standard. Okay. And, and then it's your, it's incumbent upon you or your coach to figure out, well, is that 90 really what's, what is the best cadence for you? You know, I can look at start to drill down with your power numbers and find out where that cadence is no longer as it goes up, it becomes less efficient. And as it goes down, it becomes less efficient. So almost like a bell curve, finding the most efficient part of your pedal stroke, it might be 85 RPM for you, Jeff. And for me, it might be 95 RPM, but 90 RPM is a, is a good place to start. And the thing I'll caution people with, with low cadence You know, it's it's great for certain types of workouts we call neuromuscular power workouts, lower cadence. But as a mountain biker, it can be very hard to respond to obstacles or, you know, if you're in the woods with somebody and they're attacking you, it's hard to respond to that, that movement from a low cadence. So if you're at a high cadence, it's easier to react to certain things that can be a challenge for people like single speeders. So one of my endurance mountain bike racers that I work with, 12-hour guy, he rides a single speed, which I think is the craziest thing in the world.
0: (laughs) That does not sound Uh, fun at all. You know? (laughs) Less competition, though, right? right? The single
2: speed category is not huge. So he rides a single speed, and we're constantly looking at cadence because that will dictate what gear selection he makes for certain races. So I might look at a race he did last year and look at his cadence, and it was way below he, where he was most efficient. So we made a bad gear choice last year. And this year we're going to go and give him, you know, give him an easier gear choice so that he can spin a higher cadence up some of these longer climbs.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, You're like a caddy, like telling people which, yeah. which club <laughs> to use. Oh, I would be the worst
2: caddy, Jeff. i just continually give them a driver (laughs) uh but yeah absolutely you're totally right it's it's we're looking at the data and determining you know what's appropriate both for single speed riders and and riders who you know uh, cyclocrosses is is an event now where most racers and and mountain biking most racers are using a, a a single ring in the front I don't know very many. I don't think I have a single off-road athlete who uses a front derailleur anymore.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it seems like that's the one place it kind of makes sense, especially like cross country where you need more of that high end, you know, to Yeah. Yeah, really put down some speed on the flats.
2: Well, and you know, you look at a guy like like Travis, um, he might want to have a 36 or a 38 front ring. Whoa! Well, if you put a 36, yeah, if you put a 36 or a 38 front ring on my bike, I'd be pushing it up some some climbs. <laughs> you know, I'm not there anymore. So, you know, I I race cross country with a 32 front ring. So, you know, it depends on the rider and fitness and and, you know, same thing with cross. As I got less and less good at cross, uh from a fitness standpoint, I moved from a 42 to a 40 to a 38 front ring. And uh Kept the level of fun the same.
0: So this Travis with his big ring, he sounds like a really impressive dude. I'm excited to see what comes out of him leading up to the Olympics and the Olympics. Can you tell us a little bit more about his training plan or what's up with Travis?
2: Yeah, so Travis has been an elite level cross, mountain bike, and road athlete. And he's, he's really kind of gone back to the sport he loves which is which is mountain biking um after he's been off the
0: cuz it's better <laughs> right
1: yeah everybody everybody comes back
0: yes
2: flat out mountain biking's the best uh, he'll still race cross and he'll race cross at an elite level but um what we've done is we're working on building a team around Travis so it takes it takes a village to bring an elite athlete and deliver them to an event like the olympics Um, And, you know, this is by no means a for sure thing, but we're certainly going to build a level, uh, uh, you know, a a group of top level therapists, sports therapists, scientists and trainers around Travis to give him what he needs to perform at the highest level. And he's going to have to do UCI mountain bike races this year. He's going to actually start his season this season at Pisgah Stage Race. And then he'll, you know, we'll go to Canada for a little bit. We'll come back and do national championships in the U.S. And then we'll we'll do World Cup race at Mount Saint Anne, and then transition into cyclocross. and And this season is all about getting prepared to and moving up the start grid so that next year, when the Olympic selection starts, we are starting from the first or the second row, and we've got a good start position. So we're bringing all this stuff to bear, like you know, we've we've we have a very specific strength plan that's been built by a, a strength coach that I work with, and I'm giving him his on the bike workouts and some off the bike workouts, as well as uh, body work that he needs to stay fresh. He's working with uh, a scientist and uh, former mountain bike racer. Who runs uh, a software company called Infusion Training, which is our the way we manage our data. We Travis will upload it into Infusion, uh, which is a new machine learning-based system that we use, and that'll ping me, and I'll be able to look at it and tell him how his workouts are going. Uh, you know, and and so he has this team at his disposal to be able to take care of them. And, you know, Travis is, you know, we'll call him, call him the fighter pilot. And, and we're, we're the guys that are taking care of the airplane and, and putting the gas in the engine and putting the bombs on the wings and making sure that he's ready to go.
1: Well, this has been really awesome, Ben. I really appreciate you telling us a little bit more about endurance training for mountain bikers are you currently accepting new clients
2: yeah absolutely i have i do have a couple of slots left for this season so you know i'd be happy to chat with some people going forward and uh, you know i've got com is my website and ben at com. you can just shoot me an email happy to, to talk further about, uh, you know, what your goals are or what's going on in your world of training.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks. Yeah. Ben's definitely a great resource and we'll have uh, his information in the show notes as well. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace.